This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind woman to Jesus and begged him to touch and heal her. Taking the blind woman's hand, Jesus led her out of the village. After spitting on her eyes and laying his hands on the woman, he asked her, do you see anything? The woman looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees, only they are walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the woman's eyes again. She looked with her eyes wide open. Her sight was restored, and she could see everything clearly. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. I'm so excited to be with you on this gloomy morning. I'm team fall as well, so I'm, I'm bringing, bringing all of this uh, into this moment. I know the sunshine has been a gift, um, but I love this opportunity to kind of come closer together and settle in. This morning, we are talking about Mark chapter 8. As Cameron mentioned, we are in a series right now. It's called Underground, the Gospel of Mark, where we are going deep into this whole book, which is, you know, a, a testament of Jesus's life, teachings, ministry, death, and resurrection. And in the telling of all of that in Mark, we have this kind of efficient, plot-driven, quick telling that can kind of get us through the story with all these major beats. And we're going to go through it. We have been going through it with the accompaniment of queer thinkers. We are using the commentary Queering the Bible, Queering the Gospel of Mark from Unbound to guide our readings of these scriptures and hear from another perspective. And today, the person commenting on Mark chapter 8 in the way that was to influence my sermon today, is Kashif A. Graham. Now, Kashif A. Graham is a black man, a gay man, living in mostly white Nashville. He is the outreach librarian for religion and theology at Vanderbilt Divinity Library. He's a poet and an author. And he picked the most poetic couple of verses, I would say, in all of Mark. Now me, I am a plot reader. I love a good, fast-paced story. I tend to get bogged down on long descriptions or overly poetic writing. I feel it's a personal flaw, but I'm trying to accept it about myself. <laughs> but this really is poetic. Graham picked out this highly metaphorical, highly image-driven story. It's different from the rest of Mark, which is, as I mentioned, utilitarian and very fast-paced. I see people, but it is as though they are trees walking. 
or in an older translation, I see men as trees walking. Now, Graham is keenly aware of genre being a librarian, and he observes this text through a theatrical lens, which he says is, in essence, a queer lens. He says that from that lens, this is an aside, a moment where the characters are pulled out from the rest of the play, pulled out from the set and the dressing, all into a new context, different rules, perhaps even different metaphysical rules, set apart from the main story to tell something special and important. Now, Graham's reflections on this text as a gay black man in the South are extremely powerful, personal, and poetic. I want you to read them. I want that so badly that we're gonna link it in the squad page, the commentary. It's short and it's really, really deep. But I didn't feel like it would be right for me to just riff on his personal, deeply personal reflections. And so I'd like to direct you to them. And I want to share what his reflections brought up for me. Now, reading this through a theatrical lens, understanding this as an aside, made me curious about the rest of the play. The context, all of the groundwork laid to create this moment, this highly meaningful, metaphorical, poetic moment. Now, context is important to me in general, and that's why we're going through all of Mark. After this, we're going to take a break, but we are halfway through the Gospel of Mark, if you've been here the last eight weeks. And it matters to me what's happening around each of these stories. A lot of times we like to pluck individual stories or verses out of context, and we lose so much. This is why every week I fight and occasionally lose the urge to basically just tell you the entire chapter. There's so much, and it all influences the rest of it. It's all piling on meaning and layers, and if you try and pull one of those layers out, it's still beautiful, but it loses so, so much. I want you to read the whole book. Today, we're going to go through chapter 8, and we're going to get to this little aside and understand why it means so much. So, in another reading, we were talking about how Jesus fed 5,000 people. This chapter opens with another feeding. This time, it's 4,000 people. And actually, these numbers... They're really meaningful because we start with a certain number of loaves of bread, a certain number of people. Then Jesus instructs them to share this tiny, minute amount of bread. It's, uh, it's five loaves for the 5,000 people. It's seven loaves today for the 4,000. So you've got a couple of loaves of bread that are blessed broken, distributed among the people. And instead of only the first couple of people having what they need, the whole crowd somehow gets enough and there is left over. In the first feeding, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. And again, in this kind of poetic understanding of what all of this means, those numbers actually have a lot of significance. 12 is associated with the tribes of Israel. Twelve is associated with the number of disciples. Twelve represents the people, the people of God. And so in this first feeding, 
there are 12 extra baskets for the people. And in this feeding, there are 4,000 people and they are hungry. There are seven loaves to, be, to feed 4,000 people and there are seven baskets left over. Now seven shows up in the scriptures a lot, a lot. And it shows up from the very beginning. The first sentence in the Bible has seven words in it. The week has seven days. And what happens on the seventh day, the day of completion? Because technically, creation is, is built on the sixth day. So the seventh day is the day of rest, Sabbath. And so when I read this, when I read Jesus feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, the bread that is enough, the bread that is complete, broken and distributed among the people, the 12, the tribes, the chosen, the disciples, and there being seven baskets left over, what I hear is there is provision. There is enough provision. There is complete provision. There is provision enough to rest. I have a colleague, Jason, who argues that the heart of the gospel is actually about economics. And that can feel reductive, but in these moments of these feedings, it's actually really hard to argue against. Because in God's economy, there is enough for all. Faith is actually about casting in your lot with everyone else, to literally break what little you have into pieces and share it with others, to discover that when you've done that, when we've all done that, there is enough. There is more than enough. There is enough to rest, to be, to be the people, to rest in the provision of God's love. The heart of the gospel is that God's love is sufficient. There is enough to go around. But that's literal as well as metaphorical. Emotionally, God has sufficient love for us. We do not need to strive or struggle for it. Spiritually, God has an excess of love for you. You do not need to perform or compete for it. And materially, God has an excess of love for all creation. We do not need to hoard or withhold from one another. There is enough. And it requires all of us to trust in God and one another, to break everything down, to hold it together, and to rest. We can rest in the provision of God's love. And that is what will happen in the fullness of time in the completion of things, when that seven is made whole, we will rest and everyone has enough. This is the beginning of Mark chapter 8. So the Pharisees show up and they begin to argue with Jesus. They don't get it, they don't like it. They have a system that they feel is complete. It's the temple system. There is a hierarchy and an order. You give pieces to the right people, the right people put it on the right conveyor belt, it goes up to Jesus, or not Jesus, we'll get there, goes up to God, and then that's enough. But it, it re relies on that hierarchy, on that power distribution, and it's not shared. And so the Pharisees are really troubled by all of this sharing. They argue with him, and they say, prove it. Prove you are who you say you are. I want a sign. Give me a sign from heaven. And Jesus is basically like, you guys are the worst. No, 
No. No. So after this, Jesus is frustrated. They're on a boat. Jesus and the disciples, the crowds are gone, the Pharisees are gone, and Jesus is just like on a tear. And he uses this metaphor about yeast. He's like, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, for the yeast of Herod. And this metaphor, it's like a corollary to the mustard seed, that small thing that grows. The yeast is a small thing, a tiny thing, a minute thing that when in a large gathering of flour or in a bread can change the chemistry of all of it. A little thing that can spoil or change the whole batch. And the disciples are hearing and they're like, yeah, okay, yeast, yeast. And they look at each other and they're like, this is because we forgot to bring more bread, isn't it? Because they were like, we only have one loaf of bread on the boat. This is Jesus just talking, there's the bread, we're, we're going to be hungry again? There's yeast. It is a flatbread, so I don't. <laughs> Jesus is like, you guys. Here's what the scripture says exactly. Jesus knew what they were discussing and said, why are you talking about the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you grasp what has happened? Don't you understand? Are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Don't you have eyes? Why can't you see? Don't you have ears? Why can't you hear? Don't you remember? When I broke five loaves of bread for those 5,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, 12. And when I broke seven loaves for those 4,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? And they answered, seven. Jesus said to them, and you still don't understand. The disciples are still worried about the most basics of provision, about not having enough. We don't have more bread. They're not understanding the wild provision of God, the kingless kingdom that is coming, and neither do the Pharisees. The fear of the Pharisees and Herod at losing their power, that's the yeast when the empire is destroyed and power is shared among people, that is the vision of the gospel, the good news. And the people threatened by that are those who have power now. They are the yeast changing the whole thing, changing the meaning of all of these miracles. And so Jesus is saying, you've been with me. You've felt this miracle. There has been enough over and over again. Why aren't you understanding why aren't you understanding? And this is the setting for this little aside of healing. Now I want to note quickly that we did change uh, the gender description of the person in the text. Sometimes it's really helpful to step out of our gender preconceptions and engage the text in different ways. And so I hope for some of you that was really meaningful. In this text, there are some particularities that I'd like to shout out. This healing takes place in Bethsaida. In Hebrew, bet means house, and zed means fishing. So Bethsaida means house of the fishermen. It also happens to be where Peter, Andrew, and Philip are from, the disciples, the fishers of men. The other thing that happens in this exchange, Jesus is getting physical. 
Jesus is spitting on this person's eyes. And I just, in, just in full disclosure of like what I bring to the text, that really bums me out. I like, I have a thing with saliva. And it's been like since I was a kid. It's not like a full-blown phobia, but I just like have this like inexplicable discomfort with saliva. It was bad when I was a child. I have an older sister who knew this about me. And uh, when we were kids, part of our job to contribute to the household was to set the table for dinner. And part of my job was plates, and part of her job was silverware, which she thought was extremely unfair because piece by piece, there were m many more pieces of silverware than plates. <laughs> and so she wanted to trade. And I said, no. And she said, okay. Then every night at dinner, I will lick one fork and I won't tell you which one. Now this was cruel and brilliant, and we, I traded immediately. <laughs> but when I think about why saliva freaks me out so much, I know that, that bodies are gross and weird, right? Bodies are, are intense. And I had to get over that when I started dating because kissing was something I wanted to do, and Apparently, there's saliva involved in that, so I had to really come to terms with it. But saliva is really intimate. Saliva is about a kind of closeness that you don't share with many people. And despite my almost phobia, now that I'm married, I don't actually think that hard about my partner's saliva. And now that I'm a parent, wildly, I don't actually think that hard about my child's saliva, which, because she's 13 months old, is on everything. <laughs> so when I read this passage, after getting grossed out by Jesus, putting his spit on someone's eyes, I think about how intimate that is, how close they would have to be for Jesus to touch his own mouth and then reach up and gently place his hands on a person's eyes, a person he loves. So who is this person in the passage? The woman, as we called them today. The scripture calls them blind. Now, as always in these healing texts, we have to unpack our ablest readings of scripture. Here we have a metaphor for healing centering on seeing and not seeing, which is really about perception without understanding. This is a metaphor. It is not a miraculous healing of a physical disability. And we need to let go of our desire to engage this as a miraculous healing of a physical disability. But I also want to acknowledge that there are blind folks who also don't love being used as a metaphor for seeing people. This is the metaphor we have to work with today, and we just need to know its implications. In this passage, we have a person who cannot see, and then a person who perceives but cannot understand, does not see rightly. So I want to tell you about this aside one more time, in the context of knowing all of the provision, the disciples not understanding, the Pharisees fearing 
the redistribution of power, the location, the house of the fishermen, the person who cannot see, and the intimacy of Jesus' body. In the dwelling of the disciples, the fishermen who became fishers of men, those who had eyes but could not see, Jesus took one of them, unable to see, took them by the hand. He led them out beyond the bounds of the familiar into a place they had to trust and follow without sight. He brought them in close. He brought his hands first to his own mouth and then placed it on their eyes, asking, do you see anything? They looked up. They say, yes, I see people. They look like trees, but they walk and move. And Jesus draws close in again. He lays his hands back on their eyes one more time. And now the person looks with wide eyes, truly able to see and comprehend for the first time. After this passage, Jesus predicts his death on the cross, the way that his body is put on the line for the people he loves, and the disciples, again, don't understand. Peter rebukes him, even. This is where we get Jesus shouting at him, get behind me, Satan. They don't understand. You don't understand, Jesus says, I need to give you my whole self and it will cost me. I am here in the flesh. I came here for you. I came here to be with you. I am the loaf that will break and provide. I am enough. You fear that there is not enough to share. You fear that there is not enough of me to break and still be whole. I will break myself into pieces and show you what wholeness and healing looks like. There will be enough. I am enough. Lay down your fear. We will be together. You will see. There will be enough. Later in the scriptures, Paul will write, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. We are each invited into healing with Jesus, but it is not our expectation. It is not the things that we want in this world, the, the ways that empire has told us we can be made whole. That is, by fitting in, by having the kind of body or the kind of ability that empire demands in order to survive. It is about closeness. It is about intimacy. It is about being with Jesus, being vulnerable with Jesus. It's not the proofs. It's not the signs. It's not the demands of our consciousness that say, give me an argument I can't refute. It is relationship. It is love and connection. It is the intimate love of Jesus who offers himself down to his very body over and over again, laying a hand and asking us to look again, 
to see. And though we may see only dimly, as a reflection now, though the people we see may look more like trees than like our siblings, as we draw to Jesus, as Jesus' touch penetrates our being, we are all made whole. We are drawn into completion. We will understand fully as we are known fully by God. And there will be more and more and more than enough. Will you pray with me? God, I am not a poet. God, I do not understand. God, sometimes my mirror feels dim and foggy and scratched. Sometimes the trees seem twisted and shadowy and threatening. But God, may I follow you. God, may I relax into the touch of your healing hand. May I open my eyes wide. May I perceive and understand. And when I do not understand, may I trust. God, you have called the people together to be made whole. The tribes, the disciples, the church, the family. May we be family to one another. May we grip one another's hands in the dark. May we lean into your loving touch. And may we truly comprehend. Amen.